You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. Um, I'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year. I was elected as the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. I'm also the proud co-host of this podcast with Jill. Um, Jill, before we get started, do you want to introduce yourself to our audience listening today? Sure. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jill Wine-Banks, and I am also, was also a Biden delegate and the whip of uh, part of the delegation. I'm also the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience as a Watergate uh, special prosecutor and uh, trial lawyer during that case, as well as general counsel of the Army and the Carter administration and deputy attorney general of Illinois, uh, and many other things, uh, including the ABA. So welcome to everyone and a special, special welcome to Steve Schmidt, our special guest. Yeah, as always, we wanna thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. To support future episodes of Intergenerational Politics, please consider rating and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts or other podcast platforms. Um, On our show today, we will be discussing the recent RNC convention as well as how Biden can win big in November by turning on not only Democrats, but also independents and Republicans to vote for him and down ballot candidates as well. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we had your good friend, Rick Wilson on, who is one of the co-founders of Lincoln Project on the show to talk about the DNC convention as well as Lincoln Project ads. Today, we could not be more excited to have on another co-founder of the Lincoln Project, Steve Schmidt with us today. Steve really needs no introduction, but for those of you who may not know Steve, um, he is a communications and public affairs strategist, having worked on numerous Republican campaigns, including former President George W. Bush, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Senator John McCain's. Um, Today, Steve is an MSNBC legal analyst, appearing frequently on the network, so thank you so much for being here, Steve. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, Let's get right into the conversation. So you were a lifelong Republican until Donald Trump's presidency. Um, What was the moment that made you leave the Republican Party? Well, for me, the breaking point was around the profoundly immoral policy at the southern border where parents and children were being separated purposefully, deliberately, cruelly, in enforcement of, in my view, an illegal policy And as a moral proposition, um, what was happening harkens to some of the darkest chapters in our history, the separation of families at the slave auction blocks and the abuses that took place against Native Americans and the child separation policies of the late 19th century. But when you look at the situation at the Southern border, Donald Trump described for political purposes and and actively um, actually deployed uh, regular army units for theater, right, to the southern border as he tried to gaslight the American people, believing that a marauding panzer division was about to break through the southern border and to invade Texas when, you know, in, in fact, it was poor and desperate people moving north. And, um, the reality is, is that um, we have refugee laws and refugee policy, and some of those people would be able to meet that requirement and under law have an ability to present themselves for consideration at the southern border. And the, the sad reality is, is we can't let in every person who wants to come into America. We do and should have a legal process. It's important to know who's in the country. Um, But these people, when they made it to the border, they were desperate people, poor people. And when they saw someone wearing a uniform with the American flag on the sleeve, they should have known that they were safe. Not that they were at the beginning of a great trauma. And that immorality in in that moment was finally at long last enough for me, is that I think that for me in that moment, I believe that the Republican Party had become fully the vessel of Trumpism in the country and was irredeemable and needed to be burned to the ground. And it was a recognition, a sad one, that my side, my vision of the Republican Party in that, in that moment also had lost, had failed, that an inclusive party that could appeal to minorities, to women, 
uh, could appeal to young people, that vision and what I had fought for in, inside of Republican politics was just over. Yeah, obviously you are um, a traditional Republican. Last week was the RNC convention. So I kind of want to get into that um, before we move on. But um, so in terms of the RNC convention last week, I mean, was there anything that happened last week that made you feel like, you know, maybe we could go back to where the Republican Party was before <laughs> Trump? Or, you know, what were your um, overall impressions with the convention in general? Well, let's talk about what we saw last week at the Republican convention, because I think it's really consequential. You saw three things. You saw breathtaking lying. Breathtaking lying. You saw total lawlessness, disregard for federal law that prohibits the use of federal property, federal personnel for overtly partisan political purposes. And you saw the seizure of powerful symbols of the American Republic for perverse and rank political purpose, right? You also saw a political convention that had no platform attached to it. The platform that was attached to it was one that required nothing but obedience to the leader. And that means it's fully a cult of personality. You saw a convention built around racial animus and fomenting chaos. And the senior counselor of the president went on TV, acknowledged their view that the more chaos in America, the better it is for, the better it is for Trump. You saw the absurd spectacle of people that are some of the most prolific and best known liars in the country standing up to communicate that Donald Trump deeply cares about other people, cares about your family, cares about the country. And of course, that's an absurd proposition because we've all, we've all watched this. But at, but at its core, right, what, what Donald Trump asserted in that convention is extremely consequential. He asserted, in essence, I am the truth, I am the law, I am the state. Which means that you saw fully one of the two great political parties embrace a cult of personality that's a fascistic enterprise at its core on American soil. You saw Trumpism as an ideology come into full blossom. It's not a new thing anymore. It's not just about grievance and about Trump finding his way to a point of view. It's a point of view that's now rooting, that's spread, that's toxic, that's cancerous in a democratic society, and it requires confrontation. Can't be confronted passively. Passive confrontation to that spreads it. And so that burden falls disproportionately on one person in this country at this moment in time. And that, of course, is Joe Biden. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, to me, as a passionate Democrat, the RNC was just unbearable. Um, MSNBC um, had fact-checked interruptions, which um, I found was really necessary. Um, but like you said, what I observed was the constant lying, the telling of this false narrative, the creation of this deception alternate universe. Um, but sadly, you know, I fear that many of Trump supporters listening to the same speakers and not listening to fact checkers on MSNBC or CNN or other networks, um, that they buy into many of the arguments that were repeated throughout the convention, um, especially because the technique of propaganda works. Um, and, you know, they stayed on message last week at the RNC convention and really underscored that Democrats are coming for you. We are past COVID-19. Joe Biden is mentally unstable. Um, Joe Biden and the radical Democrats will worsen the violence occurring on the streets, despite um, all of this happening under Trump's watch. Um, so I guess my question for you is like, how big of an influence do you think this question, this convention will have on the Trump base? And then more importantly, um, what impact will it have on Republicans who are turned off by Trump and thinking about voting, um, about thinking about who to vote for and independents who are evaluating whether to vote for Trump or Biden? 
Well, so there's a lot in that. There's a lot in that question. Um, look, the polling data shows that Trump has no bounce or to, if you were to look at it in the most optimistic and generous scenario, the minuscule one that he does have, you know, is in essence like a sugar high from a cupcake at a, at a kid party, right? It's not a, you know, it's not something that's enduring. And overwhelmingly, the American people assign responsibility for the chaos in the country to Donald Trump. And no matter what, right, in another week or so, we will be denied all of the rituals of fall in this country because American life is fundamentally ended on Donald Trump's watch. Um, we will see more chaos in the schools, open schools closing. We will... Um, see 200,000 dead Americans from COVID before, you know, before too much longer. And so all, all of that is reality. And the second part of it is, is, is there a vast and prolific, organized and organic propaganda network that includes non, um, that includes state actors of hostile foreign powers to non-state actors, um, for sure, you know, for sure. And, you know, the reality is, is the Trump base is, is about, you know, that are, that are fully in on this or, you know, 25 to maybe 28% of the country. And then, you know, another core that's sympathetic to that, you know, to that position. Um, what I would say is you, as you watch this, um, when you look at, um, you know, a city like Portland, um, you know, I think it's important for national Democrats to understand in this moment in time is shame on the mayor of Portland and on the Democratic governor of, or of, of Oregon. The incompetence um, is every bit as great as the incompetence we've seen from some of these fools, you know, that are at the core of Trump support, whether it's, you know, DeSantis in Florida or Abbott in Texas. And this is giving Donald Trump an issue that he that he shouldn't have is that there there that when we talk about Donald Trump and his assaults on the rule of law, um, you know, the rule of law is supreme. And that means we we don't celebrate rioting. We don't tolerate it. Um, and what's going on in these places is is unacceptable. And so, you know, it's going to be important, you know, for Joe Biden you know, to be clear and unequivocal about that, because, you know, Trump is a demagogue of the of the first order and has come up with a plan, you know, to cause chaos, incite racial tensions. Um, you know, it's it's not it is not an accident, right, that this 17 year old kid took his AR-15 from Illinois to to Wisconsin. He was incited to extremism by Trumpism. He, he sat in the front row and he got the message. Saw the McCloskeys on the first night of the convention. What, what do you think a mentally ill, isolated, loser kid wrapped up in Trumpism like a Middle Eastern kid might be wrapped up in extremist Islamic ideology? Same thing. Right, it's not the first one. Caesar Syak, synagogue shooter. Right, all all Trumpists. And so when you when you see a convention that talks about that explicitly, the black people are coming to get you. Chaos agents are coming to burn it down. The language of civil war, the stoking. It's going to reach its target downrange the sick and the twisted and the evil. And that kid drove to Wisconsin and became a killer. That's what that convention was about. That's what happened last week in America. Oh my God, that's so frightening. Um, we saw that again and again with the RNC convention. Um, and we only know that from now until election day, all of these false narratives and these 
frightening scenes um, will only worsen. Uh, it'll get messy. But from now until election day, you know, kind of drawing from your experience as um, a political strategist, how do you think the Biden campaign can effectively increase the turnout of the base? Because you kind of mentioned um, uh, the base of voters uh, for both parties. Um, and how can they attract new voters to counter um, the false narratives that Republicans and Trump are communicating about Biden with this, you know, message that they're coming for you or that you won't be safe in Biden's America? Look, if it, if it was if it was me, right, I, I think it's to understand the potency of fear as a as a political weapon and how fundamental it is to any autocratic ish moment. And I think that what Joe Biden has to communicate is is this. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of each other. Don't be afraid of this crisis, of this moment, of this disease. We will make it through. We are Americans. We're all in it together. Joe, Joe Biden is called to defend the American proposition. He has to confront Trumpism. Joe Biden, in the same way that a heavyweight fight, the challenger has to knock the champ on their ass. He's got to knock him out. You don't want to go for the decision. Biden has to confront this. There are, there are more Americans against this than are for it. People know what a profound failure Donald Trump is. But this, this needs to be confronted directly, passionately, through the prism of American exceptionalism. Right? What, what makes the country exceptional isn't the jingoism and the chance of USA, USA mindlessly at a Trump rally. It's that the United States is the most revolutionary concept in the history of the world. The idea that people can govern themselves, government of the people, by the people, for the people, with an idea that says the purpose of government is to secure the inalienable rights, which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that the realization that the struggle and the story of the country is the fight to achieve those high ideals against our flawed present. But we stand at a moment right now in the third decade of the 21st century, does that mean for everybody at long last? You want to be on the side of the political debate, I believe, which is the righteous side that says, yes, this is for everybody. I, I think Joe Biden should lead an American coalition against a profoundly, and I say this deliberately with intentionality, premeditatedly, Trumpism, Trumpism is an un-American ideology. Puts the individual above the republic, the personality higher than the flag. Un-American. It's, yeah, I think we've seen that so clearly for the past four years, just this slow tearing away at just the fabric of our nation. And um, kind of before I hand it off to Jill, um, in that same vein of uh, expanding the base and making sure that we win big in November, um, one voting cohort that has always lacked um, for voter turnout is my generation. Um, there's been so much talk on social media and amongst my friends about their willingness to support Joe Biden now that um, the RNC and DNC conventions are over, but there are still a few who just won't support Biden because they think he's too old, not progressive enough, or frankly, isn't Bernie or AOC. Um, we know in this election how important it is for young people um, to engage in the political process by voting. So I'm curious as to what you think needs to be the driving force behind your ads and um, the Biden campaign strategy to increase the voter turnout among um, my generation. Well, look, I think that I hope the messaging will talk to you like grown-ups and directly about how much is at stake. Um, I think a lot of kids your age, Victor, are going to have to grow up a little bit faster than the otherwise would have. We live in strange times and consequential times, which sometimes fall disproportionately on younger people with the burdens they're expected to carry. 
And you know, the reality is here in America is that you know sometimes because this has been going on for a while now, the implications of the changes of life because of COVID, but people say we're in the middle of this or somewhere down the path. And the truth is the hardships from this are only beginning. Um, we're, we're at the beginning of one of the great crises in the, in the history of the country. And you are facing real challenges. Now, good news is no one's asking your generation to storm Omaha Beach, you know, but on the, you know, on the, on the other hand, you, you are going to be required to be better citizens than some of your elders have been. Is it to require you to be engaged, to understand what's on the line and how profoundly it can affect all of your futures? Um, Jill, I'll hand it off to you to kick off our next portion of the show. Thank you, Victor, and thank you, Steve. Um, you've been talking about some of the things that I wanted to talk about with you, but one is the differences between the DNC convention and the RNCs. Uh, to me, they were very stark. You've mentioned, for example, that the Republicans had no platform, whereas the Democrats did. Um, there were no Hatch Act violations during the DNC, and they were plentiful during the Republican convention. Uh, you had uniformed border patrol agents sitting and cheering and being pointed out by the president. You had him using Marines in uniform, uh, Secretary of State uh, on an official trip, uh, Chad Wolf conducting a naturalization ceremony with citizens who didn't even know that they were going to be used as part of a convention, um, using Washington Monument with the fireworks saying Trump 2020, uh, Fort McHenry, the White House. But um, one that hasn't been mentioned that really concerned me, and I'd like your opinion on whether it was a strategic uh, decision of the Democrats or whether it was just a big mistake, and that was the Republicans mentioned the Supreme Court and the appointment of judges many times. It was a big issue. And I missed hearing any reference to the courts, which I consider to be a very big voter turnout motivator uh, to protect the Supreme Court and all the federal courts. So do you think there was a strategy or was it just a, an error um, by omitting it. Uh, well, I don't, I don't think the Democrats needed to do it. I do think the Republicans needed to because Trump is barely holding on to his base. And so that argument is out at that outer edge of the Trumpist universe, right? That politics for them is more meaningful than the cult of personality, right? That they have an ideological motivation they generally like the direction that Trump has taken the judiciary in and trying to make an appeal that, you know, despite everything else, you know, as those voters are looking wobbly um, to, to, to Trump, and they are in a lot of places, um, you know, that, that college-educated Republican voter, and with the specific evidence, you know, with the specific emphasis on that college-educated female Republican voter, you know, in seniors and Sunbelt states, you know, particularly. And one of the things we're seeing is that, you know, every time Trump engages in his racial animus uh, fusillades, you know, at news conference or, you know, whatever, he treads water and maybe slightly grows with that non-college educated white Rust Belt voter demographic, but loses ground in the Sun Belt states like Florida and Arizona. So he's in a he's in a precarious place. But that's but that you're talking about that at a Republican convention the way that Trump was from a defensive position. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes me feel a lot better. Um, I was also I noticed that the Democrats had former presidents, uh, President Clinton, uh, President Obama, and there was none at the Republican convention. 
Uh, is that significant going forward that they have really totally converted this, as you said earlier, to the cult of Donald Trump? It's no longer the Republican Party. Is that significant? Well, I think it's significant, sure, that, you know, hundreds of former staffers to, you know, President Bush, you know, Mitt Romney and McCain signed an endorsement to Joe Biden. And, you know, these aren't, you know, an isolated couple hundred, you know, people out there is that, you know, certainly the, the Republican Party um, is a very different animal than it was a, a couple of years ago. It is what it is today. It is a it is a Trumpist party. It is not a small L liberal party. It's not a small D Democratic, small R Republican party. It's a fascistic cult of personality. And that's that's what it is, is that that there's no check on executive power. Um, it is a grievance victimization ideology that's deeply pessimistic, right? You know, at the, at the foundation of the American dream is the idea that you can rise in this country. And you can, through hard work and determination, right? The, the American dream is very much alive, but it's harder to reach than it should be and for too many people it feels inaccessible but but what trump is saying is that the most pessimistic critics of of america say mm -hmm. which is that you can't rise here that that's all over that you're stuck in the station of your circumstance that like tomorrow can't be better than today, that there's someone holding you back. There's another group, right? To turn your anger towards other people, right? It's a, it's a profoundly un-American style of leadership comparatively. And, you know, one of the differences, it's not just the Democratic convention and the Republican convention and their profound differences in, in 2020 is this Republican convention is more analogous to the German American Bund gathering in Madison Square Garden in 1938 than it was to any political convention, any quadrennial gathering going back to the beginning of the modern televised age or film recorded age of the conventions. Right, the, the convention advanced fundamentally illiberal purposes that are at odds with the concepts of America's ideas, ideals, and small r Republican democracy. I'm so glad you mentioned that because as you were starting your discussion of that, I was envisioning really exactly how Hitler took over Germany when Germans, I'm sure, were saying it can't happen here. But it was that they had suffered a big defeat in World War I, and the economy was going bad. And that's what allowed uh, this dictator, this total fascist authoritarian, um, to uh, basically increase the divisions in the country and to find an other, some other to blame. And that seems to be what's happening. Um, one thing that's interesting though, in, in terms of the polling now, Trump has definitely not increased his base. He, before the convention, after the convention in, in 2016, as well as in 2020, his numbers are in the 40s. They're in the low 40s. He's never gotten to 51%. And before and after the convention, he was in the 40s. What's interesting is in the 2016 election, 20% of people were either preferring someone other than either Hillary or Trump, or just were undecided. This year, only 7% fall into that category. That means that we're fighting really over a very small percentage of people. Um, and so the question for you, both as a political strategist and consultant, but also from a standpoint of someone who's created some of the 
most effective ads uh, through the Lincoln Project, what would Joe Biden's campaign have to do to, first of all, increase his turnout? Because it is really a turnout election. So the Democrats are the majority. If they turn out in record numbers, he will overwhelmingly win. But um, if they don't turn out, that's one thing. But the other thing is, how do they communicate all of the falsehoods, uh, let's call them what they are, all the lies, all the delusions that are being perpetrated on the American people, uh, things like uh, Biden will create more chaos and cause more damage, when it is during the Trump administration that all this horror is happening. And so what what's your advice to the Biden campaign on increasing turnout and getting the truth out? I think that, again, right, this is a ideological election, but it's not an ideological election between a liberal and a conservative, right, or a Democrat and a Republican. It's an ideological election between Trumpism and Americanism, right? And, and Biden needs to be on the American side of the, of the debate. And he needs to talk clearly and honestly about what's at stake in this election. Right? We are, we're, in the, we're in the early hours still of one of the most profound crises in the history of the country, and we're led by a fool, a malignant, incompetent, who has the blood of 140,000 people on his hands because of his profound, and I mean profound, ineptitude in, in responding to this. This did not have to be, did not have to be. We, we have no chance of coming out of this as a, as a country. We're gonna, we're gonna lose the country with four more years of Donald Trump in there. We're gonna, we're gonna lose the country. And so Biden needs to confront Donald Trump decisively. On the debate stage, it's gonna be a moment where alternate reality and reality collide. So you're uh, in favor of the debates going forward. Debates, the debates, the debates must go forward. This, it's a profound mistake to believe that Trumpism doesn't require confrontation. Yeah. All, all over the world, we see a rescission in democracy and the blueprint that Trump is using is the strongman blueprint. Audacious lying, bullying, assertions of power, shattering of norms, co-option of the symbols of state, the pitting of one group against another. There, there has to be a fierce response to this. Hard-edged. You know, so, Joe, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, this falls on him in this moment. It just does, right? You know, he needs to go where the trouble is. In terms of messaging, almost no one has been as effective as the Lincoln Project. Um, and I'm just curious what you're going to be focusing on from now until Election Day, um, particularly if you have any plans about uh, increasing turnout for voting by Democrats, independents, uh, swayable Republicans. Um, do you have any thoughts on, on what Lincoln Project's going to do then? Well, we're, we're going to try to keep trying to frame the race narratively. We'll be involved in a lot of Senate races. Um, you'll see us getting our arms around some groups that it's important to drive turnout up with, for example, Puerto Rican vote in Florida. 400,000 Puerto Ricans live in Florida that didn't live there four years ago because of the destruction of the hurricane on Puerto Rico and Trump's profound mismanagement. So that'll be an important group. 
You know, we look at various categories of seniors and our persuadable demographics. So we'll, we'll have a very surgical approach to turning out people, but also trying to frame the debate at a level that shapes the choice, right? That, that, that puts forward what the essence of the choice is over these next 65 days. Sounds good. Um, so I'd, I'd like your opinion on something that's been troubling me a lot, which uh, many things keep me awake at night now uh, in terms of this upcoming November 3rd. But one of the things is that with Democrats saying to Democrats, vote by mail, and Republicans saying, that's ridiculous, you just go to the polls. I'm worried that on election night, because people are used to having instant results, that networks are going to announce the winner of the election, which would be based solely on in-person voting, which is going to be Republican. So on November 3rd, late into the night, it might look like Donald Trump has the vote. Um, and then it's going to take weeks because there are some states where you don't even start counting until long after the polls have closed. Um, and you have 10 days, three weeks, depending on to get the ballots in so they won't be counted. And then when those ballots come in and they're heavily Democratic, you're going to have had weeks of a false narrative of Trump winning. And so what do you think the way to deal with that is? Is there a chance that we can get the networks to announce no winners, to have states release no numbers until they have a full count of uh, both? Well, I'm, look, I, I'm sure everyone will be cognizant of this in the models and the, and the, and the projections, um, you know, as they get ready to make a call. Look, that... You know, that could happen, um, but that circ the, 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 what we're talking about is, is something beyond the circumstances of the election, and to some degree, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, the Trump will, in the end, not be able to steal the election. He will not. Um, the only person that can stop anyone from voting is you, right? It's that Trump's not going to be able to stop anyone from voting, right, in America. Can make it more difficult, can, it, can inconvenience it. There, there's no evidence to suggest that um, his attacks on vote by mail are anything other than a disaster for Republicans. A lot of Republican strategists are worried about it because they rely on tried and true, tested, you know, vote, vote by mail strategies to bank votes, right, in an election, right, that they, you know, operate their models on. So, you know, I know a lot of Republicans are, are worried about that. The, the larger issue, though, is you have an American president who's basically said, unless I win, the election isn't legitimate, and you'll have 30% of the country that doesn't believe in the legitimacy of an election, right? And, and the whole system is predicated around the peaceful transition of power, which has gone on, on uninterrupted since 1797, through World War, Civil War, Great Depression, assassination, right? The continuation through a secular tradition of the American Republic, right? Where democracy requires one side be willing to lose. Right. And to say, right, that I can see the election. You won. We'll get you next time. And that is the ebb and flow of democracy. It's how we pick our leaders. And, so, in, this, and in this country. Right. That that right. Privilege to be able to do that it has been paid for in blood. In sacrifice for almost 250 years. And we're, we're just not gonna, we're not gonna lie down with it. But you know, with, with, what Trump is doing is despicable. It's un-American and it should be called out and it should be repudiated. And there's gonna be a moment in time after he loses the election, I think he's gonna lose, where at long last, hopefully you'll see some of these Republican enablers, collaborators and complicit cowards 
finally at long last stand up and stop the debasement to Trump and say, no, in this country, this is how we pick a leader. You lost the election. Well, as you pointed out, though, there's going to be at least 30% who are going to believe anything he says, which means that it was a rigged election. They aren't basing this on facts. They're basing it on the delusional vision presented at the Republican convention and constantly in all of the speeches that Trump does. So is there anything the Dems and the media can do to get the facts out to the people who aren't listening? I'm not worried about MSNBC viewers, they're getting the fact checking while the lies are being told. But I'm worried about the Fox viewers and people who just get their news through social media that they pre-select to reflect what they already believe. We have a we have an enormous we have an enormous problem in this in this country um, with group with a company like Facebook. Um, which we haven't even begun really to have an honest discussion about how pernicious it is um, and dangerous in democratic societies, what, what flows through it. The, um, you know, we're about to begin the QAnon era of, of Congress. Um, we have some big, big, big problems. Um, with regard to an information landscape that's just riddled with bullshit, conspiracy, crazy talk. And I don't know what to do about it other than in the end, we, 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 we will not keep the country together if we can't tell the difference between lies and truth. Dem democracies, sustain themselves on a foundation that's, that's, that's granite, that's bedrock, and that's truth. You can't, you can't have a democratic society without truth because you can't have accountability without it, right? All autocratic societies are built on a garbage heap of lies. And, and Trumpism is built on a garbage heap of lies. It is, it is a profoundly dishonest ideology and it's important to understand it as that, as, as a distinct ideology that has its roots in some of the worst of America's past excesses, racism, Dixiecrat movement, but, it's a, but it is an autocratic, fascistic, American nationalist movement. It's antithetical to the American concepts of, of liberty and freedom. Well, I, I hope that Lincoln Project can help us get some facts out and get people to hear beyond the places they normally get information. Um, because after all, this election does require not just the popular vote, which I'm confident we can win, but it requires the electoral college, which means targeting those places that have made a difference in the past disproportionate to their population. So I, I don't know if you're a betting man, but what odds would you give that Trump is gonna win the electoral college, not the popular vote um, versus that he will lose clean and fair. No, I think he's going to lose the election. Um, but it's not over yet. Race will will tighten. I give him a 20% chance of of being able to win, which is too high. It's too high, but it's not. I mean, I, I like the chances of his 80% losing. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping facts can get out there because even things like Portland and Kenosha are being so distorted. Um, and now the, the new uh, headlines are, this is the turning point for swing voters. They're going to turn to Trump because he's successfully claimed that it's the Democrats' fault, that Biden's responsible, that Biden will make things worse. When all this is happening in his administration, 
And when we know that all of his actions have not only made COVID worse than it should have been, but have made any protests worse than they would have done. For sure. um, and so I, I, I'm hoping there's a way that you can help to make sure that um, we get across the point that Trump is the cause of these divisive and horrible For sure he is. violence. And so how do we get that across to people? Well, we just, you, look, it's through repetition. Yeah. It's through ferocity, through conviction, through the power of the truth to, to lay it out there, you know, directly. You know, people get it. People understand it. Look inside the numbers. Overwhelming majority disapprove of him as president, his handling the country, but, but Joe Biden cannot be a passive figure in this election. Joe Biden has to take the presidency. He's got to take it. He's got to repudiate Trumpism. He is our vessel to do that. He's the nominee of the Democratic Party. It's him or Trump. And, and it's just, you know, the, the, the person who wants to lead America on from this rancid, terrible, awful moment to get us out of this crisis, he's got to be able to talk to the whole of the country, right? I mean, you know, look, Trump is like a gang leader. He's a factional leader. He's trying to, he's trying to pit one group of Americans against the other to inflict punishment. He's a, he's a factional thug, okay? We, what, what we need is someone to play the role of shadow president to speak to all of us. Right, to confront Trump's ugliness with the goodness that's in the country. Right, that Trump's hate, his nastiness, his malice with decency and goodness. And summon the American people, as American leaders have done in the past, to their better angels. Well, I, th I think there's no one who could represent the goodness and empathy of America better than uh, Joe Biden. Um, He's the one who has talked to, for example, Jacob Blake's family. The president hasn't. Um, I, I think we're moving in the right direction and I'm thrilled that today, Joe Biden will be out on the campaign trail in person because he is such an effective communicator. That yep. we, uh, and so that's really important. Another important thing though is the down ballot races. And as we focus so much on the presidency, I wanna just mention how important it is that we not have gridlock in Washington. And so that means that Joe Biden needs to be president with a blue Senate and a blue House so that things can start moving again. Um, is that going to happen too, do you think? Well, I, um, I think the Democrats will take the Senate and I think we'll have control of, of government. And I... Um, and I hope what we'll see is pragmatism and some restraint. Um, it will not be an hour, in my view, to pass the outer limits of the progressive agenda that nothing in this country gets back to normal till we get through this COVID crisis. And we gotta, we gotta get through it. The economy is wrecked on Main Street. Um, you know, we, we've seen in a deep way through this COVID crisis and before, just the incompetence of the federal government to be able to deliver a service, right? And there, there's so much work to be done on reforming government and the delivery of services from fixing problems that should have been fixed 20 years ago, like immigration. We have to pass a Voting Rights Act, a Civil Rights Act, an election Equal interference act. I just right. have to add equal rights. Hatch, right, you know, Hatch Act, um, civil service reform, ethics reform, right? There, there's so much to clean up from in this, so much. So you've been a great guest, so I want to give you the last word. Um, is there anything you'd like to say to our audience about the stakes of this election and why 
Republicans and independents should join Democrats in voting for Joe Biden? Well, I think it's all on the line. I think that it's the most important election since 1864, which determined whether we were going to remain a union of states or not. Um, it's the most consequential election since then. The American experiment in, in some profound ways hangs in, the, hangs in the balance. We are in a terrible crisis in this country led by a fool, and he's got to go. He stoked a cold civil war in this, in this country, he's pitted the country at each other's throats, and we're in a lot of trouble. He has instigated a profound and precipitous decline. Um, the, the, the seeding of America's leadership in the world makes the world a much more dangerous place. And um, when you look at this election, um, vote, participate, volunteer. Uh, this is a decisive hour for the country's future, make no mistake about it. Um, what I'd say in conclusion is that never bet against the country. Anyone who ever has has lost money. Um, have faith for the future, but have faith through a pragmatic and realistic prism that we're being tested right now and the country has to pass the test. And the test starts with the repudiation of Donald Trump electorally, where the American people say that this was a big mistake. This is not the type of country we wanna live in. He does not represent the type of values that are important. And he does not represent the United States. And if we do that, if we do that together, we can start getting things going in the right direction again. Thank you so much. That was the perfect ending. Uh, we greatly appreciate you being with us and all the work that you've done with Lincoln Project and hope Thank that you, you will keep on fighting the good fight. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you listening also enjoy this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you would like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.